We come to chapter 9, and uh, one of the most famous events in the history of the church. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. And then, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible I give from the Lord to you uh, today. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that is, Christians, whether men or women, he might arrest them there in Damascus and bring them bound to Jerusalem and imprison them as well. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with Saul stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Father, I prayed virtually every time, and yet I feel it in the same measure as before, and each time in a greater measure, for the time that has passed. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to open it up and to realize that this is more than history, but this is also a revelation of your heart, Lord and of your power, and of your wisdom, and that there are things, Lord, that are bound up in these nine verses that are important for each of us, both those of us who are Christians and those who are not yet Christians, to understand about you. And we pray, Lord, that you would freshly fill us with your Spirit right now, and that you would give us a supernatural ability to hear from you through your Word. Lord, we recognize and acknowledge our capacity, even those uh, who love you most, Lord, to come to sermons and come to uh, church services without the slightest expectation of hearing from you or that you might want to speak something specifically to us. And we pray, Lord, that if there's any of that kind of casualness or any of that kind of um, just distance, it is a part of our hearts today. If we've come to your throne and to hear from you with something far short of what you deserve, Lord, a hearing ear whenever you are speaking, that you'd correct that quickly right now in our hearts before we turn to your word. We bless you for being our heavenly Father. We bless you for the price that you are willing to pay through your Son to make it possible. Thank you for your interest in our life. Conform us into the image of Christ now through your word, by your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
In these verses, we have uh, the record of one of the most significant events in all of church history. And of course, the single greatest events in church history have to do with Jesus' life and his ministry, ultimately his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and then uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But apart from those events, the things having to do with the church, I'm not sure that this event here, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who ultimately became known as the Apostle Paul, isn't one uh, of the most significant events in the history of Christianity. And this here, we have his testimony. We have his salvation story. And every Christian has a testimony. Every Christian has a salvation story. And every Christian has that account of how it is that we came to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, how we came to be born again to experience that particular miracle, and then how it is that we came to choose to follow him uh, and, and make him our teacher, make him our Lord, and to become his disciples. And every single testimony of every single Christian in all of the world is completely unique unto itself. Each one is completely different from another. And yet all of them are exactly the same in, uh, at the same time. Our testimonies are different in terms of the circumstances of our conversion. What age were you when you were born again? What was going on in your life at the moment that you were, being, you were born again? Who were the people that were part of your life? Who delivered the gospel to you? What series of people? What continent did you live in? What state did you live in? What city did you live in? What home were you raised in? Some people come to know the Lord, and they do so from a mountaintop experience. I think of Joey Baran, who won the whole gigantic universe, you know, was the world surfing thing that was the dream of every kind of surfer. And, uh, you know, the worldwide, uh, world, wide world of sports was there back when that was the biggest thing on television, was there televising it, and he wins the whole thing, and there he thinks that this is it. He's attained to the highest event in his life, the highest goal, and then within just a few minutes, the camera crews were gone. He's standing there with his trophy. Everybody else headed off to dinner and all, and he never felt more empty in his whole life. And he realized from that mountaintop experience, it was a, a light going on for him. And it was a part of him coming to know the Lord. And others of us come to know the Lord when we're at the absolute bottom in our life. The whole, everything has fallen out, whether in terms of relationship or economics or our own sin, disappointment with ourself or being hurt by other people. And here we are in a place where we can't any longer be the hero of our own story. We need another hero to step in and take care of us. And we turn to the Lord and in that circumstance. And so all of these things are bound up in our testimony. There's tremendous diversity uh, within our testimonies. And each testimony is utterly unique in human history. They say that no two uh, snowflakes are identical. I take their word for it. I've never been able to confirm it. They always melt before I can get them quite under. But I'm sure there's a way to do that. 
but it speaks about the uniqueness, the beauty of each one, but the uniqueness of even in a snowflake is amazing. So it is with every Christian's conversion story. And I think that's one of the reasons that we never tire of hearing how another person got saved. And one of the gr most interesting, exciting things that a person can do in life is watch the final episode of American Idol. No, not that. I'm not putting it down, though. Okay. One of the greatest things that happened, I mean, last week after the second service, you had the hamburgers and everything and getting together and bounce houses and all of that stuff and good fellowship and great, and it's just time. And sometimes you're driving someone, you know, someplace or taking them on an errand or you just got a few minutes together and there you are with a Christian. One of the most enlightening and encouraging things a person can ever do in their life is say, tell me how you came to know the Lord. And then they begin to tell the story of how it happened and how different it was. And then here it was. And we compare it with our own. And every one of them is so unique. And every one of them is so inspiring. But there's also a sense in which every testimony is completely identical. Every single one of them is exactly the same in the sense that every testimony is made up of the same three things. Number one, who and what we were before we put our faith in Christ. Number two, the circumstances that were surrounding our finally putting our trust in the Lord. What room we were in, who was there, and, and uh, who did we pray with, and so forth. How did that happen? It can happen in front of a television set, listening to a preacher on TV or whatever it might be. And then the third step in anyone's salvation story is then the miracle that God performs in our life, the person that he has made us into as a result of being born again. And how he takes us from the path that we put ourselves on, the path that we thought we would be on for the rest of our lives, and now having been saved now, it puts us on a completely different path in life in completely different direction, completely different experiences to be found there, and the fellowship with God that is found in that particular kind of place and, who will, and what we become as a result of being born again. And this morning, I want to examine Paul's conversion from the vantage point of those three things, who and what he was before salvation, how he got saved, and then the person that he became, and then take a few lessons out of that for how they apply to our lives this morning and what it speaks to us. You notice in verses 1 and 2, we have uh, Paul before becoming a Christian. And at this point in his life, he's known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And uh, after his conversion, he becomes known as Paul and becomes the uh, uh, Apostle Paul. He's probably in his early to mid-30s at this particular point in his life. He is the rising star within the sect of Judaism uh, in Jerusalem at the time, the sect of the Pharisees. He is an up-and-comer. Everybody knows it. He's trying to prove himself and make his way within that sect. In verse 1, we're told that Paul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in Jerusalem, that is, against Christians. Significant to notice that word still within the passage because it refers us back to chapter 8, where we were told, uh, where we're told, following the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr of the uh, Christian church, we're told in Acts chapter eight, verse three, that he, that is Saul, made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. 
And at that point, Saul became the point man for unleashing this very, very furious, very, very deadly persecution upon the Christians within Jerusalem. The persecution is so great. I mean, it's one thing to, to read about in a room like this. It's another thing to be a Christian in Syria today. It was another thing to be a, a Christian in Jerusalem at the time that Saul of Tarsus was in charge of and making his way up through the ranks of, of the Sanhedrin and also the Pharisees. And so here the persecution that he meets out, that he's the point person for, is so fierce that people begin, Christians begin to leave in mass, fearful for their safety, fearful even for their own life. And, and in the language of, of uh, Acts chapter 8 and, and all, the Greek language, very, very graphic, it portrays the persecution of Saul against the early church as being one that is like an animal-like frenzy, an animal that tastes blood, and it only makes him crazier and, and wanting to taste more blood and to destroy more flesh. And this is the frenzy that he went into, and he's determined to destroy Christians and utterly wipe out Christianity. And so he begins to forcibly enter into the homes of Christian people, just like you and me, just for being Christians. And he enters into their homes and then with some kind of a strong-armed group of people that were with him, it wasn't him alone, but he took men and women and he dragged them out of their house. He dragged them out of the privacy of their house. You think about how crazy you have become when you just forcibly break down somebody's front door. You feel you have a sense of entitlement to enter into their private sanctuary and then not stop there, but then to drag them out of their homes and then to imprison them. I don't know the last time you've broken into somebody's house, knocked their door down, and then dragged them out uh, uh, across the front lawn of the house and had them arrested. When a person does something like that, I mean, it makes you realize this person is way, way off, and yet this is, uh, this is where he was. And, and this is the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian. He was a very ugly, awful human being. He was proud, he was arrogant, he was self-righteous, and he was violent on top of it. And yet in all of it, in his mind, he's a good person. He is doing the work of God. And here he doesn't, here is Jesus claiming to be the Son of God and as a result being divine. Uh, here is Jesus and his followers declaring Jesus to have uh, died on the cross for our sins, been buried, rose again on the third day. He considered all of this to be blasphemy, as he would later explain in writing uh, to Timothy in his first letter. He said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But he thought he was doing a good thing. He wasn't doing this in his mind because he was a bad man. He was doing it because, in his mind because he was a good man. Significantly, in that same verse, you notice the use of the word murder. And evidently his arrest didn't merely end up with people being arrested and then imprisoned, but that many Christians who were imprisoned as a part of this whole process ended up losing their life ultimately as a result. And Paul openly confessed it later in life when he was speaking to a group of very rabid 
uh, Jews who were now intent upon killing him for simply being uh, a Christian, and he declared to them, to that uh, crowd as they were around him, he said, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And he said to them, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of the fa our father's law, and was zealous toward God, even as you are today. And he said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And so the verse speaks of him as also, verse 1, breathing. And you notice that word breathing, breathing threats and murder. In the Greek language for that, that's used there for the word breathing there, the breathing in the Greek language is a very precise language. The breathing does not refer to breathing out, but it refers to breathing in. In other words, the threats and the violence and the murder constituted the entire atmosphere of Paul's life. He's kind of like if you've ever seen movies or maybe even seen it firsthand where you've got this war horse that is in the middle of battle or close to battle and it begins to smell battle within its nostrils. It starts to get excited. It starts to snort. It starts to rear up. It starts to bend its head in different directions and it's excited now to enter into the battle. And this is the entire atmosphere of Saul's life. All of this violence, all of this persecution. He's addicted to it. He breathes all of it in deeply. All of it excites him. All of it energizes him. So much so that the arrests and the violence surrounding his persecution of Christians within Jerusalem only whets his appetite to continue after he has uh, driven so many Christians out of Jerusalem, he then approaches uh, the head religious leaders within Jerusalem and asks permission to then expand his uh, persecution then into Damascus. They hadn't even thought of it. It wasn't even on their mind. They were happy enough to have these Christians in disarray and removed from the city of Jerusalem, but they had no thought of the necessity of moving it to Damascus. This was all Paul's idea. This is the frenzy that he is in. This is the emotion that, that uh, he's, he's feeling in, in it, and he wants to now export all of it. And he receives the permission that he requested, and all that fills his heart and his mind as he now makes that 135-mile journey on that road between Jerusalem and Damascus is to continue all of this frenzy. That journey would have been about a seven-day journey on horseback or by donkey or by mule. It would have been two to three weeks if they had traversed it on foot. And again, this is the B.C. This is the before Christ version of the great Apostle Paul. And I think it helps us to appreciate the magnitude of the miracle that has occurred within his life upon getting saved 
that he, be, he was this one thing over here and became something entirely different. And to think about the power of the gospel to give people a fresh start, we almost never think of the Apostle Paul in terms of what he was. We think of him almost exclusively in terms of who, and what, who it is that God had made him into and what had, God had made him uh, into. I have enormous respect for the Apostle Paul. I can't imagine having more respect for him than I do. I refer to him frequently as the great Apostle Paul. But becoming the great Apostle Paul, that was something that God did in his life. That's something that God made him into. It was not who he was naturally. And I think that knowing all of this about Paul or about Saul of Tarsus at that particular point in time, you would have thought that on the journey from Jerusalem to uh, Damascus that God would have killed him rather than saved him. If you had put it up to a vote of Christians in the early church, that would have been the sentence that would have been meted out upon him, and yet God is going to save him. And God does this kind of thing all the time, even to this day, and will do so all around the world. Now let's notice the particular second here, the particular circumstances of his conversion. And the physical circumstances are very, very interesting. At least they are to me. We notice where they occurred. Uh, That road between Jerusalem and Damascus is 135 miles long. He's almost there. They're just outside of the city of Damascus when this great event occurs. We're told that a great light shone from heaven upon them and around them. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, as Paul recounts his testimony, he lets us know that all of this happened at noonday, in the middle of the day. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to the Middle East, but you can have pictures of it within your mind. But when you are out in the middle, when you are out in the sunshine at noon in the Middle East, you're talking about a very, very bright sun that is beating down uh, upon you. And that's in, in a tremendous light that you are walking in, bright enough all by itself. And this light now comes in and it dwarfs that light. It makes it like they've been in a shadow previously. And, and so the light comes in, and it's so great that it leaves Paul supernaturally blinded for three days and for three nights. And all it was was essentially the heavenly glory that's associated with the presence of Jesus. And what was Paul's reaction to all of this? It tells us there his reaction was he fell to the ground. If, if he was on a horseback or donkey, he got knocked off his high horse, so to speak. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, the Christian consorts were just like all the time uh, back then. And I remember a group by the name of Tamarack um, that came to the Calvary Chapel in Napa and uh, did a concert. And they had a song about Paul's conversion, about him getting knocked off of his high horse. And I've always kind of associated it with there because it wasn't just a falling down physically there. He's getting knocked off his high horse in terms of how out of control his pride and his arrogance was at the same time. He was being humbled. 
And here is the greatest enemy uh, Jesus had at the time, the greatest enemy of Christianity, the greatest enemy that the early church faced at the time, Saul of Tarsus. He's determined to exterminate Christianity. He's convinced that he can do so in his own mind, and yet just the slightest little hint of Jesus' glory, the Shekinah glory associated with Jesus in heaven, just a hint of that on that road to Damascus, sends him to the ground, and he's humbled, and he's helpless, and he's blind, and he's powerless. William Shakespeare in his play, Measure for Measure, he might have had this very event in mind when he wrote, but man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he is most assured, his glassy appearance like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven and makes the angels weep. Well, you know, Shakespeare can be a little obtuse, can't he? So we'll trust King David to bring it a little closer for all of our hearts in Psalm 62, 9. Surely men of low degree are a vapor, and men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed in the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. His con Notice his conversation with Jesus. I think, you know, we spend so much time worrying about, uh, you know, back, back in the day, you know, everybody's all freaked out about Madeline Murray O'Hare, and she's trying to do this and trying to do that, and she tried to do a lot of this, and she tried to do a lot of that, and she's dead, and she's gone. And you know what she left behind? A Christian son who was exposed to all of her vile, all of her venom, and venom and all of her Saul of Tarsusness, and he ultimately, seeing both sides of it, knew what kingdom he wanted to be a part of and became a Christian. We're so worried about what someone might do and can do and is doing, whether it's ISIS on down, and they're just a moment of God's glory from being rendered into nothing. We have nothing to worry about. We notice his conversation with Jesus in verse 4 through 6. And Jesus, his opening question of Saul is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? He says, he says Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, not in his own mind. He was persecuting Christians. But in this statement, Jesus informs Saul that to persecute his disciples, his followers, is to persecute him personally. What you do to my church, Jesus is saying, you do to me. And that's how personally Jesus is connected to his disciples. It's how personally he takes all persecution that is meted out against us or meted out against you for simply being a Christian and walking with God and obeying God and his word. So often when 
were being persecuted for simply being a Christian and walking uh, with the Lord, we take it personally. Lord, they're persecuting me. How could you let them persecute me? Can't you see that I'm a, a good person here? But they're not persecuting us supremely, but rather the one who lives inside of us. Again, we must never expect the world to treat uh, Jesus inside of us any differently than it treated him 2,000 years ago in his incarnation. I don't think that it's inconceivable that this statement of Jesus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, that set in motion in Saul's mind, Paul's mind, the revelation and the imagery of the body of Christ. And he brings it out so beautifully in uh, Colossians, in Ephesians, in 1 Corinthians, and so forth through the New Testament. How it is that Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ. We are all members of the body of Christ individually, and we are led by Him. Everything that happens to us affects Him. Everything about Him affects up all of this interconnectedness that is going on in, in the body of Christ. And I think in germ form, this hits His mind. He begins to work on it, and then later with the clarity that comes from the Holy Spirit, all of that beautiful imagery becomes clear to us on the pages of Scripture. But notice Saul's response in verse 5. He said, Who are you, Lord? Now he's speaking with humility. It's interesting. We know. We already read the thing. We know who he's talking to. He doesn't know who he's talking to yet. He says, Who are you, Lord? He knows he's talking to someone. He knows he's talking to someone who is greater than him. That's why he calls him Lord. But he doesn't know who it is that he's talking uh, to. And Jesus then responded, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, verse 5. Now imagine what those words must have been done in Saul of Tarsus's heart. <laughs> you know? He is trying to wipe out Christianity, wipe out any remembrance of Jesus, wipe out every single Christian. He is trying to discredit the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, 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 even the idea that he would be alive today as the Son of God and, and uh, God the Son and so forth. And here he gets an introduction. Here is this greater one that I'm in a conversation with, but I don't know who he is. And he immediately tells me, that this is Jesus. And his whole world has to start to spin. You ever had somebody bring you news that leaves you disoriented? Somebody says sometimes it might be a tragedy or some other piece of news or something happens over here and that little nugget comes into your mind and that little piece of information is so far-reaching in, into your intellect, in your mind, what you know about the situation and, and, and all. And it comes in, and it's such a startling bit of news that your head starts to spin. You can't put two thoughts together. It's all swirling, and it takes some time to see how this bit of news fits in with what I know over here, and I thought over here, and I believed over here. And then it does the same thing emotionally, the impact. His whole head is spinning. His whole world is spinning here as a result of, of this 
uh, news that he has just heard. And he realizes instantly that what Stephen, at the moment of his being uh, martyred, and the sermon that he had declared prior to that, back in, in uh, Acts chapter uh, 7, that what Stephen had declared to them, that here is Saul, is a part of that religious audience, that all of this was true, that Jesus was not and is not dead at all, but that he's been raised from the dead, and he's been raised to sit at the right hand of God in heaven in a position of a son, that he is fully the son of God and God the son, that he is divine. All of this stuff is beginning to intrude progressively within his mind in contrary to everything that he wants to believe. And he realizes now instantaneously that he is on the wrong side of Jesus. And because he's on the wrong side of Jesus, he is on the wrong side of God. And then notice that Jesus further declares to him in verse 5, and this is very significant. He said to Peter, to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Very often, one of the things that people will speak about concerning the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is how instantaneous his conversion was, the apparent suddenness of it the suddenness of his change from this violent kind of hate-filled persecutor of Christians to becoming a Christian himself. But I don't think this conversion of Saul was nearly as instantaneous as it might seem. And the reason that I don't think so is because of Jesus' phrase to him here, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad in those days was what Jesus is referring to was an ox goad, which was simply a long stick that was uh, sharpened into a point at one end, very often covered uh, with metal. And the, the farmer or the sheep herder or the oxen herder or whatever would use the goad in order to direct animals in the right direction. They're headed someplace, we want to get someplace, and they would use it to keep the animal well directed. And so here is this man... He's got a yoke of oxen. He's trying to plow this field, and one of them's wanting to go wayward and, or stop altogether, and he would take the goat, and he would poke it to keep them moving and keep the, poke, it, poke them to keep them moving in uh, the right direction. And for an animal to kick against a goat, I mean, imagine you kicking against in bare feet against a, a sharp stick that's pointed at one end. All you're going to do is hurt yourself. So to kick against a goad was an expression of rebellion. It was an expression of self-will. I don't know. I don't like you. I don't like where you're pointing me. I don't like the direction you're trying to lead me in. And so an ox would then kick against the goad, and as a result of that, all they would ever do is just bloody themselves and, and harm themselves by doing so. And to kick against God's goad is the same way. All it does is it results in our own harm. And Jesus' declaration to Saul in this regard reveals the fact that Saul's been kicking against the goad. He's been kicking against God directing him, God trying to lead him for a long time within his life. And that's what Jesus is communicating to him. And, Paul and Saul understood it exactly. 
Jesus had been actively goading, actively working in Saul's life in order to guide him to a proper conclusion in his life concerning Christianity, concerning Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, concerning the fact that he was and he is the Son of God. And clearly Saul had been under conviction concerning the truth about Jesus for a very, very long time. And, but thus far, he had violently resisted Jesus' goading or his leading or his teaching. And what was the goad that God had used in Saul's life in this regard? I'm convinced the goad that God used was the preaching and the death of Stephen as we studied in Acts chapter 7 a death that Saul participated in. He held the garments of those that stoned Stephen to death and left him dead under a pile of rocks. And that goading in Saul's life continued with every Christian that he persecuted. Put yourself on the scene of Stephen's, uh, Stephen's death, and there is Saul of Tarsus. He's the religious leader. He's the Pharisee. He's the up-and-comer. He's the big shot. He's the big know-it-all about God. He's the example of what it means to walk with God and to be true to God and to be serious with God. And he listens to this sermon pour forth out of Stephen's heart, not a note in front of him. And he realizes this man knows God and the Word of God. And he knows the implication of this life of Jesus and what it means to the Old Testament. And he further realized that this man knows God personally and knows Jesus personally. And when he looks up into heaven at the time that he's being stoned, waiting for that last stone to knock him unconscious and then finally for him to bleed out, he's given a vision of Jesus and he declares with the innocence of a child, even on that scene that he sees the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father and he commends his spirit to Jesus. And here you put yourself in the place of Saul of Tarsus. And here is one man claiming to know God and living a certain quality of life. And then here is the life of Saul of Tarsus for all of his religion over here. And as he sees how this man dies, as he listens to him handle the Scripture, as he sees this man speak of his intimacy with God as he sees how he even handled his martyrdom. Don't, you know, don't hold this against him. And he saw the broad gap between what Phariseeism had turned him, him into and what this being a Christian and what Jesus Christ turns a person into being something entirely different. And he could never forget it. He could never forget that scene. And I think, and I'm convinced, that as Saul, with this great, brilliant mind that he had, 
And he's known historically. You can't read his, his letters that he wrote, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and all of it, but his mind, and he's considered even within the secular realm to have possessed one of the greatest minds, one of the greatest legal minds in the history of the world. And here he is possessing this kind of a mind, the mind of a lawyer, the mind of an engineer. And every time he runs that sermon of Stephen through his mind to find the flaw in it that will protect his Phariseeism, will protect his understanding and interpretation of the law and the prophets, he cannot find a flaw in it. And like a great machine, he crunches the sermon, and he crunches the sermon to find Find the weakness to allow him to just throw it in a garbage heap and disregard it and go on about the life that he's living and pursuing God in the way that he is. And just like an engineer, again, who crunches and crunches and crunches until that light comes forward, and now you see it for what it is, and he's looking for the flaw, and he can't find it. He realizes this is the truth about God and the truth about the law and the prophets and the truth about Jesus as the Messiah. He can't break that sermon. And then when he sees the contrast between what Christianity produced and what Phariseeism was producing within himself, no, there were, was a very significant goad going on in his life all of the time. And it undermined everything that he believed in as a Pharisee, everything he had invested his life into this far, demolished it all, left it in a ruin. What he desired to ruin, what he was trying to ruin outwardly, was just simply a vengeance against what had been ruined in his own mind. This Christianity has destroyed everything that I've put my temporal and my eternal hope upon. And try as he might, and he did try, he couldn't find a single flaw in what Stephen had said or how he had died. And then with that, Saul believed in Jesus, and he surrendered to Jesus' lordship in his life. In verse 6, Lord, what do you want me to do? And with those words, Saul became an entirely different person, and he embarked on an entirely different plan for his life, and it was God's plan. And what his life became as a result is there in verses 6 through 9. He became a new creation, unrecognizable for the man that he once was, and every Christian is a new creation. The greatest miracle that a person can ever experience is to be born again. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. And for the rest of his life, Saul would be marked his life by a simple submission and obedience to Jesus' word and to Jesus' plan for his life, asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then he would be told, and then he would do it. When's the last time God heard that expression of surrender from you and from me? The last time 
we asked him, Lord, what do you want me to do? We're not saved by doing, but now that we are saved, we need to surrender to God's plan for our lives. Are you in God's plan for your life? And it's good to ask it once in a while. It's good for me to ask it concerning myself every once in a while. It's not to be heavy. He ain't heavy, he's my pastor. Not to have a heavy moment. But we all know ourselves so well, even as Christians, where we begin our Christian life and it's all, what would you have me to do, Lord? 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 Every day begins with it, and it is the greatest concern of our waking hours. And then days and weeks and months and years and decades go by, and he never hears it again. And my life is no longer, though I am fully on my way to heaven, it is no longer about his will, but it is about my will. It is about the will of others. It is about the will of the world. It is about everything but God's will. And sometimes it's just good to stop and to ask ourselves in a room like this in the privacy of our own heart with the Holy Spirit and to ask myself, am I in God's plan? for my life. And if he says yes, through his word and by his Holy Spirit, then praise the Lord. But if he says no, to then seek him about that and ask him to talk to you and me about that. And he will. Let me close with a couple of applications here. This passage reminds us never to give up hope concerning the salvation of anyone in this world. Not a single loved one, not a single family member, not a single friend or a single neighbor. The passage teaches us that if God can get through what he had to get through in terms of religious indoctrination, in terms of emotional anger, in terms of hostility towards Christianity, in terms of self-righteousness and arrogance, that if God can get through to Saul of Tarsus and save him, then he can get through to anyone. Through the years, many, many, many times, scores of times through the years, Someone will catch me at the back door, or we're walking someplace, or we're talking about things, and they'll talk about someone in their life that they've lost, up, lost hope of them ever getting saved. And once they did, they hoped and they, that it could happen and all, and, and then now they've just given up hope completely. I mean, they're further away than they've ever been, and it breaks my heart more than it ever has before. And I usually will tell a person, the thing that gives me hope in my life about those people in my life, and we all have those people in our life, and I'll simply say, you know, I just believe that if God could get through to Saul of Tarsus and he could get through to me and save the two of us, then he can get through to anyone. 
And Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul is intended to give us hope in that way concerning our loved ones. And each of us have those we dearly love and we care about who are not yet Christians, even though they know the truth about salvation. I have them in my life. They break my heart on a regular basis. It's easy to give up hope concerning them, and I regularly remind myself of the fact if God could get through to the Apostle Paul, to Saul of Tarsus, and make him into the Apostle Paul, if he could get through to me and save me, then he can do it for them. Go, God, you know, and do it. Have you given up on a child in this regard? Or a parent? Or a loved one? Or a friend or a neighbor? Don't do it. Don't do it. Because Saul's conversion here is not only the most famous conversion in church history, but it is also perhaps the most unlikely. Saul of Tarsus, if you did a poll of people in Jerusalem in that day and you asked, all right, who is the single last person that you believe would ever become a Christian? They would have all named Saul of Tarsus. And if they had said, listen, we're going to give you a million to one odds that, that he won't, and it'll be a million dollars to one dollar, would you be willing to take that bet? They would have taken the bet for the dollar. In people's minds, that man will never, ever, ever become a Christian. And yet he did. And maybe I just wish I could... Maybe that was some of you before you became a Christian. People looked at you and said, I believe anybody else in the world could become saved or will become a Christian, but that person never will. It will never, ever happen. And yet here you are, and only you know the story. And if people knew who you were and where you were from, they'd all be clutching their purses and putting their wallet in their front pocket. Or... And yet here it's happened. Because God continues to do this kind of thing. You might sit here in this room this morning and you're not yet saved. And it took somebody saying, I'll buy you anything you want on the menu at Mimi's after church for you to come. You say, all right, I wouldn't mind that. I'm a little low on cash. I'd like to go ahead and do that or I'll do it for my family. But everyone in the whole world looks at you and says, this person will never get saved. Everyone in the Modesto will be saved before this person is saved. And yet, so they thought of Saul of Tarsus. And for you, Paul gives you the hope that no matter what your past sins might be, and very few people have outsinned Saul in the eyes of God, arresting people, murdering people, and so forth. And to do it in the name of God, not even in the name of drugs or in the name of power in the name of some position within a gang, but to do it in the name of God. And God forgave him, and God will forgive you, and he'll save you as well. I like the old saying in this regard that there are, there are none who are so good that they don't need to be saved. There's a certain part of our population that needs to hear that. But the saying goes on to say there are none who are so bad that they cannot be saved. And there's another portion of the population that needs to hear that and needs to know it and to be convinced of the truth of it. And the Apostle Paul is 
proof of the truth of that. And he himself, Paul, would want you to know that as he wrote again to Timothy in his first epistle. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. I mean, he knew what he was. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And then here it is for you. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, of whom I am chief. And Paul gives us the hope that no matter what kind of a person we might be, that God can change us and make us into a new person. That's the power of the spiritual birth and being born again. One moment in time, we were something else entirely. We were Saul of Tarsus and whatever that means to us. And then in an instant in time, we're born again by the Holy Spirit. God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into our life and makes us into a new creation. And that's what he does. That's the change that he makes. And it's powerful and it occurs in a moment in time. And it's real and God is willing to do this in my life and in your life as well. Jesus did not come into the world to make good people better. There are no good people by heaven's standards. He came into the world to make dead people alive. That's the dilemma. That's the need. That's the problem. He didn't engage in a project of making good people better, but dead people, spiritually dead people alive, and he loves to do it. The second thing that we learn here in this passage is to never judge a book by its cover. And God was working in Saul's life. He's under this deep conviction of his sin, a deep conviction that he's misunderstood what it is that he understands about the law and the prophets. All of these things are going on inside of him. He is coming closer and closer to becoming a Christian, but nobody could see it but God. And I think that not always, but very, very often, the stronger the reaction against Christianity, very often the closer a person is to getting saved. Jesus spoke about the fact when he wrote to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, he said, I would that you were hot or cold. I would that you were on fire for me or you were hostile, cold toward me. But because you're lukewarm, he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. He had more hope for the person becoming a Christian in the person that is openly hostile and cold toward him than the person that's just indifferent to him and the things of him. Because when a person is hostile to Christ, hostile to Christianity, it means something has gotten to them. Something has planted in their mind that they are crunching, that they are working on. It does something to their heart. They are not indifferent. The indifferent goes over here into this particular category. They're the hardest people in the world to get saved. Not the person who wants to 
argue with you about the Scriptures or, or is hostile towards Christianity. And the reason that they're so emotional, so engaged, is because they've given thought to it, and it's doing something inside of them. And Jesus said, I've got more hope for that person getting saved than this other group. I was watching television, it's been a year or so ago now, and I was flipping through the channels, and, and they've got that channel, Palladia. It's a music, I think it's Palladia. It's a music uh, channel, and so they've got all kinds of music on there, everything, and so I'm floating through, and boom, I pop on it for a second, and I was, I was looking for like an old episode of Hullabaloo, um, or where the action is, and, uh, and you just keep trying, trying to relive my youth, and, uh, but seriously, I'm heading through it, and in, in a half second, this guy is playing musically, music that I like, and he's got a voice. And so I stop, and I listen to what he says, but it's the end of the show, and the credits start to come up, and I catch his name, and I go online to check him out, because that's, he's writing words that somebody's thinking about, not to have a hit, but to convey a message. And he's writing from his heart, and a very skilled musician. So I go on, I start listening. I listen to about three of his songs. I don't know that I have ever met a person who is more mad at God than this man. I mean, he takes, he takes a swipe at God in Christianity every way that he can. I was so upset, I just threw my monitor. No. No. I thought to myself, he's going to become a Christian. I won't be surprised in a year or five years or ten years from now that I read about his conversion. You can never tell a book by its cover. I think about Greg Laurie, Pastor Greg. He tells the story all the time in the Crusades and when he gives his testimony that here he is, he's a hippie, he's indifferent, he's, he's aloof because of the life that he's lived, and people would hand him gospel tracts. He'd always receive them, but always with this kind of distance in, in all. You would never have the idea that this person is going to get saved or they're going to even read the tract or that they care anything about God or spiritual things at all. And Greg Laurie speaks and, and says of the fact that he took every one of those tracts and put it in his pocket. And he put them in a drawer in his bedroom. And periodically, he would pull them out and he'd read them. Because he was hungry for God and wanted to talk to somebody about God. You never know what's going on behind the scenes in anyone's life. You can never tell a book by its cover. I think that it's very important also to remember that the Word of God that we share with people never ever returns void. Isaiah chapter 55, And so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, says the Lord. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And Stephen's sermon, though Stephen is now long dead, it never returned void. And the heart of Saul of Tarsus. 
it had exactly the effect that God wanted it to have, though it looked like it had no effect. And the same thing is true concerning the truth that we share with anyone else that we love. And some of us, some of you, we poured our whole, the, the best years in our life, the prime of our life we spent it, to pour the things of God into the lives of our children. And today it looks like nothing. It looks like it has no effect. It looks like it has no power. They break our heart every day. And yet the importance of remembering that that wasn't wasted time, what we sowed in their heart is still there. And it's there for the Holy Spirit to use to bring him to, them to him. It never, ever returns void, whether that's shared in the uh, life of a children or with family or friends or neighbors. And then I want to close with this to just stop this morning and the weight of this testimony and remember the miracle of your salvation and the miracle of your salvation story. It is no less detailed and no less intimate and no less personal than the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, where God began to work in your life long before you ever heard the gospel to prepare you for the day that you would. And he knew what room you would be in and what people would be involved. And then when you heard that gospel, he gave it a life that no human being can give to it. And you believed in that gospel, and he caused that to happen within your life, a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then here, uh, the, uh, how all of those things came to pass, and then following that, this changed life, this miraculous life that has occurred as a result, and how God kept the message of the gospel for some of us. It was planted in our hearts for long years by other people that hoped for better from our lives, and yet God kept it alive through all of the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs of life because he knew he had a circumstance that was situated coming down the road where I would land myself in, and then I will, he will listen to me there. And I listened to him there. And so did you. A beautiful miracle. And your testimony is different from everyone else's story, and all of it was directed by the Holy Spirit himself. And I want you to stop and to think about the miracle of God that you are today. So well, we think about Saul of Tarsus, and we think about becoming the Apostle Paul, and we see, okay, miracle, yes, we marvel in that miracle. And then we miss the miracle of our own life, the miracle that you are and to give thought to it, and to glory in it, and to accept it, and to realize it. Now, I sound, sound like one of those sappy guys that, you know, positive confession people. But you're a miracle. And God did a miracle in your life. And nobody else has your story. And yes, in one sense, your miracles, like everybody else's in all of human history, 
But in another sense, it's like nobody else's. And that's God's, the personalness of his love for you and what he did in order to save you. And you have the testimony that God has for you. Some people, they get saved out of the hell's angels. Sometimes when you don't have that kind of a testimony, you wonder, can I join the hell's angels for like six weeks and then get saved? Or worse yet, you're a Wall Street broker and you get saved. And sometimes a person gets raised in the church and they get saved in the church and the day comes when the light goes on in their life and their relationship goes from being an extension of their parents' relationship with God to finally becoming their own. And you can look at it and say, why does God give me such a vanilla, you know, kind of a testimony and a witness here? I mean, no biker. I mean, if I came, if I got saved as, as like a lead member in one of the drug cartels or something, I could never have to work another day in my life going around giving my testimony to everyone. And the reason you have the testimony that you have is because there's a group of people, a long line of them, who will come in and out of your life through the rest of your life who will be impacted by your story. Your story. And it will be powerful to them. And a testimony is powerful stuff. The amazing thing is that people can argue about all kinds of things from the Bible and all, whether they're literal six days and this and that and all, the, everything in terms of creation and all, but no one can deny you your story and deny that that story is true. Who and what you were before you became to know Christ, and how it is that you came to put your faith in him, and then the person that you have become as a result. That's the greatest miracle that a person can experience. Praise the Lord for it. And aren't you glad for that testimony that is yours today? It's a marvel, and it's a wonderful thing to stop for a moment and to give some thought to that, our own testimony, as we consider the miracle of Saul of Tarsus uh, being born again, and his testimony as well. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'd like the worship team to come forth. Before we close... I want us to just take a moment with our eyes closed, if you're willing to do it, in the privacy of your own heart. And think about that one or two or three or five persons that you look at and you've given up hope that they'll ever be saved. They've broken your heart every way that they can break your heart. And they continue to break your heart. And you would literally give your right arm for them to be saved. And yet as you look at them, it seems as if this is hopeless. This is the last person in the world who would ever be saved in the decisions that they're making. And sometimes it's so hard when it's our own children our parents, our brothers or our sisters, or other friends and loved ones. And I want us just to take a moment here this morning
and for you to wipe the dust off of that person in your prayer life. And I want God to allow hope to be restored in your heart concerning their salvation. And that you can't read a book by its cover and that you have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes that they will never let you see in drawing this person to himself but to know that he is. No one thought Paul would get saved. And if you have anyone in that category here this morning, you say, this is the person I've given up hope here to now take a few moments and to lift those people up to the Lord right now and to do it in Jesus' name and to do it within this room. To say, God, once again to him, God, I believe that you can save this loved one. And I pray and thank you that hope has been rebirthed in this regard in my heart today. And now I specifically ask for you to do whatever is necessary to bring them to you today in the remainder of their life. And there may be one or two or three that you need to pray for. And let's spend some time praying for them now before we dismiss. Mm -hmm.